Hey there, welcome to the Faces of Marketing Podcast, where we talk about the human stories and lives of different people and perspectives in the marketing profession and entrepreneurs and movement makers. This is your host, Ryan Buchanan, and I'm here with my friend, Kathy Armias, who is a marketer, speaker, speaker, and author of The Unbreakable Rules of Marketing and How to Rock a TED Talk. Kathy is a speaker coach to me and a bunch of uh, our entrepreneur friends, including some of my favorite TED Talk speakers, uh, Lou Raja, who we've done a podcast here before, and a good mutual friend of Kathy and mine, as well as Tyrone Poole and Emma McElroy. Welcome to the show, Kathy. Ryan, thank you so much. Happy to be here. Awesome, awesome. So as we always do, we start at the very beginning. Um, I think you grew up in a big Italian family, um, and then you were originally grew up till you were eight years old in Toledo, Ohio, right? Well, actually, okay. it was Chicago. Correct me, correct me, yes. <laughs> no, no, no. So this is a funny story. This is actually how I got to L.A. I grew up, my mom and dad met in Chicago. My mom's 100% Italian, super mafioso background. My great uncle actually died from Al Capone's men. Just crazy stuff. And my mom... Seriously? Yeah, seriously. It's so crazy. It's just, there's some, there's a lot of crazy stuff on my mom's side of the family. All, all interesting. And my mom didn't want to stay there. My mom was like... She met my dad and she wanted to move somewhere where she could like, she really wanted to live in the super suburbs, you know? And so she's like, Toledo, Ohio, that's the place. So she, they buy a corner, you know, lot and a house and they get a pool in Toledo. Like nobody has a pool in Toledo, Ohio. They did. And she thought she was going to live her life there. She realized like one or two years in, like they took a, they went on a vacation to LA and she's like, yeah, let's move to LA. I don't want to stay in the suburb anymore. So Toledo was just a little, it was a little skip, but yeah, I mean, we're from the Midwest and, uh, I think my mom really just kind of wanted to get away and start a new life and kind of get away from all that. So yeah, it's interesting. So, but before you, cause you moved to LA area when you were eight, right? Yes. So until then, was it just total stereotypical suburban life of you and your brother? Or? My brother and my sister. Okay. So they were both born in Toledo. And I don't remember too much from when I was actually living in Chicago. I was really young, of course. But yeah, when we moved to Toledo, I, all I really knew in my younger years was this great little suburban life. I had all my friends. They lived on the same street as me. I was the, the superhero of the street with the, the pool, even though it was one of those terrible doughboy pools that were <laughs> above the above ground. But yeah, it was a, it was a great life. So it was an interesting transition when we, like, I feel like we got jerked out of um, Toledo and we moved to LA. It was very abrupt for me. And you, uh, so then you moved to LA and something pretty shocking happens. And I know this from your TED talk that uh, you, you, you dive into it. Can you talk about like what happened when you first moved within the first year or so that you were there? First month. <laughs> first month we were there, we got robbed. We lived on Reseda Boulevard and it's like a main road in the Valley in, in California. It's, and um, they had alleyways in the back and we were gone one night and couple of guys in a big van pulled up in the back in the alley broke into our house and like took everything I we we came back to the house ev drawers things tipped upside down it was it was like at that moment it was the scariest most profound intense thing that had ever happened to me 
I felt violated and I didn't even know why. It was a weird feeling. Like I couldn't, you know, it's something I couldn't put a finger on at that point. And we had to wait a couple hours for the police to show up. So my mom made me go sit in my room. I ended up sitting in my closet. It's, I felt like the most safe there because everything else was kind of upside down. And then a few weeks or a month later after that, my, because my parents probably were already having major issues, uh, they said that they were going to get divorced. So my trip to L.A. was just... <laughs> crap like everyone else is thinking hollywood and like you know beaches and california is best place on the planet and you have basically all your stuff taken and your parents put up and you're totally new to town so you don't know anyone so what how did you cope for, after that yeah it was really hard um i on top of everything my mom sent me to a catholic school and <laughs> That was my first experience going to a school where I had to wear a uniform and they were really strict and everything was crazy. I have this one really weird memory of the the day that I started second grade in California. Everybody had those scented markers. Remember the scented markers? And I asked my mom if I could get them and she was like, no, I'm not paying extra money for scented markers. And I felt like it was a, I felt like it was a terrible thing. I didn't know anybody and I didn't have scented markers and it was like the most I mean at that age it was like the worst thing that could happen and it took me a long time to make friends I mean it just you know you know how it is like you move to a place and there's kids that live in pockets of neighborhoods and they all know each other and yeah it was rough it was a rough couple of years for sure and but you're like uber athlete so usually that can be the emotional connecting ground of teamwork and all of that like is that how you found your tribe yeah so you know this this when I say a couple of years I should have really said like a decade because those couple of years really translated out to my parents you know splitting up getting divorced going through a bunch of stuff me moving you know around back and forth from my dad then my dad moved away got a stepmom got four new siblings I mean there was a lot there's so much going on and by the time I had gotten to junior high I was like it was so much pressure I was like ah I have to do something to relieve this and that's when I found sports I started running track and then I found this crazy sport of fast pitch softball and I only started playing fast pitch softball because one of my friends was really into it and my first year I was in right field and I, I was like looking around and just like I, I don't know what I'm doing here but I'm so competitive I have such a competitive nature that I was like if I'm going to keep playing the sport I want to I want to have the ball every time so I'm, I told myself I'm either going to be the pitcher or the catcher and so I decided to to go for being a pitcher that's cool. Bef I'm going to jump back in time. I always love this question when I asked. So you share an office with Lou, Raja, and I love that he called me out on this question as being a very American question because it's laced with a lot of privilege. Of But it, I just totally remember as a little boy being asked by an adult, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? I was, you know, NBA point guard or whatever. So when that question came to you as a little girl, what, what was your immediate response? Okay. This is so crazy. So I started playing fast pitch softball. I had it in my head that I wanted to be the first female pitcher for the Los Angeles Dodgers. 
like no joke I'm not even kidding and I used to do this crazy thing where I had a big mirror in my room and I would practice the form which was actually different than what I was doing I was doing the under you know the underhand pitch and I'm like okay well this isn't over the shoulder like if I'm going to actually do this as a career there's no professional fast pitch softball team so I have to I have to switch somehow. And in my mind, I thought, no big deal. It's just a, it's just a little bit different. So that was, a, that was a dream for a while. Like a legit, actually, you know, and it kind of fits my personality. I want to be the first woman to do something or I want to tread in an area where you're not supposed to be, I guess. <laughs> That's what entrepreneurs do. But you've, I think the level at which you played you are closer to fulfilling that dream than maybe the rest of us. <laughs> Possibly, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know about the Dodgers. <laughs> yeah. um, okay, so so then uh, let's fast forward a little bit to high school. You uh, were successful in sports, and then like academic. You know, because this is an entrepreneur and marketing podcast, like academically, were you drawn to? things that were at all related to public speaking or to marketing or anything like that? Like what were you into academically? And then we will get into kind of like how far you went in this on the sports side. Yeah. So, you know, hindsight's always twenty twenty for everybody. And when you, when you get to that age where you go, wow, I actually think I might know who I am now. Everything starts to make sense. I skipped an entire year of school. I ditched almost every single day when I was in 10th grade with my new step sibling. She's the same age as me. We were like three months apart and I just wasn't that interested in school. And, and when I did, when, when actually my dad found out and I got in trouble and, you know, I had to do a whole new year. I had to do an, a year over. I really put my mind to it. And then I had a, like a 3.78 you know, GPA and I did really well. It wasn't that I wasn't smart enough. I realized, you know, again, in hindsight that I just wasn't challenged by history classes. And some of the things that I look back on though, I attribute the reason why I got into marketing was because of a psych 101 class. I ended up taking psychology and I was like, this is fascinating. I really, it's really interesting to see why people do what they do. And so I, I actually still have my psych, my psych 101 book from high school. I think I stole it, right? Because it has the teacher's name on the bottom. But um, I noticed that I got into that. I got into journalism and I was, you know, I, I was in more of what you would, you know, would be more of kind of the arts or the science of the mind. And, and then I realized, you know, I realized much later that I, it wasn't that I wasn't smart. I just... I wasn't going down the path that most people were going down. And so, yeah, yeah, it was, it was a struggle back then. Cause I, it, and I'm, I'm come from a, I come from a family of really smart people. My dad's side, they're all like engineers and I'm not the engineer type at all. So it always made me feel like I was stupid. I literally grew up in my household feeling like I was not smart at all. And then on the sports side, you were, uh, you are this fast pitch softball um, pitcher that you must have played in on club teams or things that got national exposure because you were you were potentially Olympic bound at, as you were getting closer to high school graduation. Is that right? Yeah. So I ended up on 
an ASA team, which is the uh, American Softball Association. It's like the highest level. And it was kind of on this junior Olympic route of we're like the top teams in the nation playing at the national level. And I was doing that for many years. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I was definitely heading a direction when I was in high school. There were scouts from colleges coming after me and talking to me. And um, the newspaper, the newspaper articles were always being written on. One time I had this game where I pitched 19 innings and it was a critical game. We were playing a, a huge Did rival. your arm almost fall <laughs> off? It's crazy, actually, Ryan, because when you do it the other way, like when you're pitching overhand, it's actually really bad for your rotator cuff. But the underarm movement's actually the natural movement of the arm. So, no, it was it was weird. And so they did a write-up, but it was really sad. We lost in the 19th inning, one to nothing. I pitched all those innings, and then we lost. But it was it basically became a pitcher's duel, you know. So, um, yeah, I had, I had this route that definitely I was heading down, and then I got pregnant right out of high school, and all that kind of ripped me into another direction. So was part of that that you were kind of rebellious um, to, uh, you know, just to when you were eight or whatever, all that happened to you, you know, you're you're in a divorced family scenario with there's seven of you total and all of these things. And so by the time senior year came around, you're like, I am going to do whatever I'm going to do and like no one's going to get in my way. Or was it like did you totally fall in love with this person and think that you were going to, yeah. How, how did that all come about? Okay. Okay. (laughs) I'm like, a, I think that you, uh, I feel like you might've known me when I was at you. I mean, you pretty much described, you know, the whole skipping a whole year. I just was in a, I actually was a really angry person at that time in my life. And looking back now, I, I don't know how I made, made it through some of that, but it was really angry and there was a lot of things that I had bottled up and, you know, there was so much stuff going on in my family and and a lot of really bad things happening. And I just, yeah, it was my way. It was, it was my way to control my life was just to, you know, be the CEO of my life, I guess. And so yeah, I was very, very rebellious. And in some ways, you know, getting pregnant was, you know, would have been viewed as kind of a mistake in life. I could have went to any college I wanted to pretty much. I could have made it to the Olympics. But I actually think that it helped me continue to go down that route of getting some grit in my life where I really had to struggle for a lot of years um, to pull myself out. And I, in hindsight, I'm happy that it all happened the way it did. And I have a beautiful daughter and a beautiful son. So, you know, you get some good things out of this. That's amazing. And so how old are your son and daughter? Oh my God, it's crazy. My daughter's 25 and my son's 23. I know that's what happens when you have kids when you're super young. People freak out. People actually freak out because I have grandkids because my daughter has kids. I know. It's crazy. You're the youngest looking (laughs) grandmom of all time. (laughs) Yes. Um, Yeah, I know. People kind of freak out about that. But again, that's kind of what happens. And, you know, there's always there's pros and cons of doing things that way and and doing things the other way where you wait a really long time and have kids. Yeah. So you and I have known each other for over a year and kind of worked in this entrepreneurial and public speak coach capacity and things like that but I just recently just you know a few days ago watched your TED talk and what I haven't resolved is the impression that I got from the TED talk is that during those high school years and things like that that you got 
I get that you got into fights and you're angry and all those things, but for some reason I got this impression that you were, uh, in your talk, you were saying you were almost unlikable. And I just like, I can't resolve that because you seem so at your core, like likable and dynamic and like that you want to connect with people. Even if you were angry, you still would seem likable. So can you resolve that for me? Yeah, I was an extremely angry, angry person. And I only let a few people into my life and everybody else I intentionally kind of pushed away. And, you know, on that note of my TED Talk, it was a, one of the most, one of the most, I don't know, one of the things I, I believe to be a miracle in my life is that to this day, I've never had a sip of alcohol. I've never smoked a cigarette. I've never done any drugs ever and I believe that to be very interesting like I don't know how that happened but there were kind of two major things that happened on why I didn't do that one was there was a motivational speaker that came to my school this is so ironic you know and again in hindsight of it I admired this guy's speaking skills but I never thought oh I'm going to be a speaker one day but he was the he was the real life remember the show Beretta no. Okay, so it's like a it's like a 70s show about a cop and the the real life cop was a guy named David Toma. And David Toma in real life, he had a 98 convi- percent conviction rate cuz he would dress up in costumes and disguises and he would catch drug dealers. And he had this crazy thing happen to him where one day he was on the job and he got um, he got called out on an emergency and he ended up showing fir- first on the scene. He was first responder and a little boy was choking and he, he did the Heimlich on the boy and saved the boy before the EMT got there. He went home that night. His son choked and he choked to death. He panicked and like that same night and and he ended up getting really depressed and he ended up getting addicted to some kind of medication he was taking, and then he became a drug addict. And one day he woke up and said, what the hell? And he's this Italian mafioso guy too, by the way. It's so funny that it connected with me. He woke up, and he was like, "I'm what is going on? Like, I was catching drug dealers. So he went clean, and he became this crazy motivational speaker. And I never forgot this, Ryan. He came to my high school. I was in... 10th or 11th grade at Simi Valley High School in Simi Valley and and there he was David Toma and and he, he would tell the school administrators like put big trash cans out and I will tell the kids like throw your drugs away you know no questions asked and he'd go to schools and fill up trash cans but he said this one line I never forgot it he said if you're doing drugs right now because he would scream at everybody if you're doing drugs right now there's only one of three things that are going to happen to you he's like you're going to quit you're going to go to jail or you're going to die. And I was like, wow. I just remember sitting there thinking how profound and impactful that was. And it uh, somehow in my subconscious, I was like, I don't know. I don't want to die, I guess. So I'm not going to do drugs. That's, that, he was clear in his communication. Very clear. <laughs> so, yeah, just going back to what you actually originally asked was, you know, it, I definitely was in a state... It took a conscious effort for me at some point. When I started my business, actually, is when it did. I, I was like, wow. I was going through a divorce. I started my business. And I was like, how do I resolve the fact that I'm so angry? And Lou is actually one of the people that told me. He's like, well, you're in a perfect you're in a perfect career for it. We hang around a bunch of motivational speakers. He's like, you can work on yourself. This is not who you are at your core. Just He, he used to tell me, actually, get rid of the mama Kathy that had to come in and save little Kathy when you know, you've created this person. Persona, 
uh, to, to survive and you just don't need her anymore. Like you don't need that hardcore getting in fights, angry person. Is Lou a psychologist? Lou is. <laughs> you, well, you know that he's a psychologist without yeah. the degree. His, his father right. actually is a psychologist. Oh, okay. Oh, that right. guy drops yeah. psychology on you. Yeah. You That's can right. all the That's time. Right. Yeah. <laughs> he's amazing. Oh, so here you are maybe 20 and you're raising your kids and then how did you you took some college classes like how did you go and then get this really cool marketing job in your early 20s yeah yeah so just crazy stories I I was uh I had my daughter and I was pregnant with my son and and I I was in this really bad marriage to this person, of course, that I didn't love. I was rebelling, as, as we said. And and um, I, I was like, I got to go back to work. I've, I have to I, I have to be able to take care of myself. And I just knew that it wasn't it wasn't going to last. It wasn't going to sustain. So I found online a job that was a sales and marketing position for a Korean um, glass beveling company. So they manufactured glass beveling machinery and I ended up getting the job and I'm in my early twenties and I started traveling all over the world. I was going to, to conferences and, and conventions and um, where, where were you living at this point? I was living in Portland. Okay. Yeah. At this point I had moved up to Portland because Portland state brought you here. Oh no, no. Actually I had a couple of, I had a couple of colleges here that were, were looking at me too when I was in, when, when I was in high school still, but no, it was, it was the father of my, my kids. He was from Bandon, Oregon. And we kind of made a quick transition from Bandon. Like I went to Bandon. I'm like 2,200 people in this town. That's like my high school size. Is that before the golf course was there? <laughs> yeah, I think okay. so. I think, um, that the, but the cranberry bogs were there. I know that. Um, and Bandon, Bandon cheese was still there at that time. <laughs> so um, I, I moved up to Portland, and I loved Portland. I totally fell in love with Portland. I'm like, yeah, this is a place I want to raise my kids. So yeah, I was here in Portland, and I was working for this guy. And he, he had a brother that lived in Seoul, Korea, and he, he, they both owned this company. And then the guy that lived here was basically the representative selling the glass machinery in all of North America. And so I got involved in this weird, bizarre company. And the, the funniest thing, and I, I know you know this, Ryan, but they had this tagline that they had on their brochures when I first started working there. And it had like a picture of this glass beveling machinery, this big intricate kit machine and it said on the headline it said so easy even a woman can do it <laughs> ouch <laughs> so ouch right and I looked at it and I told uh, the, the president of the company here his name was key I, I said you know I I can appreciate the sentiment of this I really can I, I realize that this is an industrial you know this is an industrial you know very industrial industry you know and and it's it's highly populated by men and and these machines are complicated and you know it's a lot of like heavy lifting and moving glass and I can appreciate the sentiment but it's super offensive <laughs> yeah you think yeah and I think I can do better. I don't have a marketing degree, but I'm I'm really interested in marketing. Let me take my let me take my hand at this. And so I started, you know, 
concocting some new ideas for us to and we and it was hard we were a little korean company we were competing against these big italian companies that were dominating the market and we were just like this little guy that came out of korea and was like fighting against all these other you know huge companies and you know that that period in my life was the you know the turning point the twist moment when i realized what i really loved to do which was marketing i realized that the power of saying the right things to the right people at the right time could do you know you could do wonders it was magical and uh yeah i i learned so much just by actually being I don't think any college could have taught me what I learned during that time. Not at all. I mean, having, I was flying to Milan, Italy, going to conferences, trying to like test things that I was, you know, these messages that I was doing. I was having to talk to CEOs of multi-million, sometimes multi-billion dollar companies, um, these big furniture companies, you know, back when, you know, furniture was really prevalent, you know, back East, I was going and meeting these guys. And, and again, it was a very male dominated industry. And I really, really had to get some grit and I, and it there, there's no way I could have ever learned that from any college any book anywhere yeah. anyhow and you there was one campaign that really stood out for you early on right um wasn't it a campaign where you kind of came at something a little bit differently Can yeah you tell us about that yeah yeah so I ended up uh, years later I ended up working for another industrial I ended up working for an industrial shredder manufacturer that's it SSI in Wilsonville and they manufactured shredders that would shred buildings you know construction and demolition debris cars soccer balls mattresses computers I mean you name it they were they were you know basically a custom engineered shredding you know company shredder manufacturer and when I first got there I remember looking through some of their videos that we had in our little library. You know, the company was 20 plus years old. And I, I looked and I'm like, we've shredded torpedoes? Like, I literally found one where we shredded torpedoes. Of course, the brains were out of it. And it was just kind of the shell, which if you know anything about the material, you actually know it's, it's actually easy to sh- easier to shred than many other materials. But it looks impressive. Mm. Huge missiles. And the visual. Like, everyone knows what a torpedo is from the movies. And it's like... We can tread that. We can Crazy. tread a torpedo. It it ended up beginning. It, it ended up becoming one of the first original campaigns that we started. You know, the from the company that shreds torpedoes is kind of something that we started when I first started working there. But what ended up happening pretty quickly is, you know, I it, this was back in 1999, early 2000, and I went to the CEO of the company. I was like. We're, this stuff, this, these videos, this stuff we're shredding is amazing. What, why do we not have this on the internet? And, you know, the CEO was like, well, Kathy, I mean, how many people out there can afford, you know, a half a million dollar shredder? And I'm like, I don't know if that matters. <laughs> I kind of feel like the general population would be so enthralled and like it, I, I believe it would, I believe we would get the right attention. And so finally, you know, we ended up creating a, a website called watchitshred.com. And we put up, at that time, we put up maybe a dozen or so videos. And we didn't, YouTube hadn't come on the scene yet. It was just before YouTube launched. And so we paid this local company to create one of those. Remember those old flash players? Oh, totally. <laughs> it yeah, would say yeah. loading, loading, how to get up to 100%. And mm-hmm. so we couldn't make the videos very long because they had to completely load. But we basically would show like, oh, here's a huge couch. Oh, there it's going in the shredder. Tread, 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 tread. And then pieces coming out of the bottom. And then somebody would stick their hand there to show you how tiny the shreds were. 
our videos somehow went viral. Some blogger found our site, wrote about it. It ended up on Boing Boing. And like a couple days later, Mike from the David Letterman show called me. <laughs> that is so cool. Yeah. And so it was just one of those crazy things where I think when you think about marketing, a lot of people try to like come up with a formula or they, you know, if you were, if you were coming onto the market as a new, you know, sports manufacturer, you couldn't just say, well, Nike's doing this thing. So if I did something like what Nike did, it would work. No, Nike has the compound effect, you know, and they have years of doing what they've done and they've consistently become who they are. You can't, you can't steal that magic from people. And I think too, like when I talk to, to speakers, cause in my other life now too, I coach speakers and so I'm coaching, you know, a lot of, you know, CEOs and, uh, you know, athletes and stars and singers and, you know, nobody can take away what you have. Like you have your brand and if you're consistent with it, somebody just can't come and steal that from you. Like it's, it doesn't work that way, but it, in the same way you have to build that up on the marketing side too. So so was it that aha moment and success you had with a campaign like that at SSI that led to, hey, I'm going to write a book on the unbreakable rules of marketing? And uh, the second part of that question is everyone, so many entrepreneurs I know are like, oh, I'm going to write a book. And like either we do a half-assed job and never really publish it, but you like actually did it. It was legit. Like did you have to go hide in a cabin in the mountains to write it or like how how was that like on a day-to-day -day basis of actually writing this book I will tell you exactly how that happened and it's funny because you know I wish I was smart enough to tell you that oh yeah I was so brilliant about my strategy and I had this great strategy when I ended up leaving the shredding company and I started my own company I totally had a completely different idea. I thought, hey, I've helped, you know, a mid-sized company that cannot afford an ad agency, and I've done some great in-house things. I think I'd love to do that for other companies. Oh, my gosh, I was so wrong. There just wasn't a market for that. Um, and in the midst of me trying to, and there, I mean, there may be a market there. For it, there's definitely a market <laughs> there. It's just. Not it's, how I envisioned it, I yeah, promise it's you. A, there's a slog if you stay in this small to medium-sized business clients like there just isn't as much margin margin as um as larger clients for but what sure. I'm saying is for, for what I was trying to do which was kind of be the outside yet the kind of their marketing department there wasn't quite that need they needed really those size companies needed somebody internally right. and and I, how I envisioned it was not how it happened is basically it. kind of what I was Got saying. It. Not yeah. that there's no, no way to make money in there, but I ended up, you know, I ended up going, I need to come up with a, I need to come up with a way to do a workshop to attract some clients. And so I had this idea and I'm like, well, why don't I just kind of teach, you know, what I've learned and how I created this viral, you know, video campaign and how it went super viral. The company made millions of dollars. Like it was really successful. And so I started writing in my business book. You know, we all have that, right? I started writing in my business book. What would I teach? And I was like, it would be this ironic, funny, hilarious thing called the unbreakable rules of marketing. Like I thought about it right away because I'm like, nobody in marketing, everybody in marketing breaks rules. There's no unbreakable rule. And so the whole thing was meant to be a, a satire and it's kind of like, hey, no, these things are legit. Like you should actually do them. But the irony is the half rule, because it's, you know, the unbreakable rules of marketing, nine and a half ways to get people to love you. The half rule is the most important rule of the whole book. Know the rules and know when to break them. 
Like, I'm going to tell you all the stuff. I'm going to tell you what worked. I'm going to tell you how it worked. But in the end, use common sense. So, and then, so getting back to the part of the question of like, so you started, you just started journaling and writing and I just, you know. Oh yeah. So yeah, sorry. So to write the book, I was like, and at this point I had already been speaking a little. I had went to Toastmasters like, like seven years prior to that. And it's something that I kind of enjoyed and I dabbled in a little bit. And I said, oh my God, I don't want to write a book. But I decided that this wasn't just a workshop. It was a book. And so I had a really good friend and mentor named Jeff Barry, who like is this award winning writer. And he had worked for all these great ad agencies. And when I first came to him, I'm like, here's all my stuff. This is everything. This is everything. This is all my content. Like, what do you think? Would you want to write a book with me? Because you and I violently agree on everything that I, that I have written here. And he was like, I've been a writer my whole life and I've never written a book. That would be fantastic. So we ended up partnering on this and we locked ourselves up in my office or his house for like nine months. And it was like, it was one of the most incredible experiences of my lifetime. Like it's, Jeff Barry's an amazing, amazing person, and it was so fun, and and we really put such a, it was just so fun to collaborate on that project, but, you know, it was kind of putting a voice to the, to my words. That's really cool. Um, so how, so the origin of your own business, of what you're doing now, there was a turn at some point to go from kind of these marketing workshops and being an author of a marketing book to being a world-renowned like speaking coach and um, having kind of a program uh, that's almost like a book but it has different formats for how to rock a TED talk or that style of, of format. How did that tweak happen between writing the book and then um, you know tweaking your business model? Yeah so there's this trend of like just like going a completely different direction. Um, one of my marketing clients was, you know, we were, we were talking and he owned a video production company. He's a really good friend of mine. And, and I was like, Hey, why don't you try doing kind of what I did with SSI? Like do a really cool video, like put something together. That's amazing. Like you do great video work, but you're doing it for these companies and it doesn't really showcase who you are as a person. It's John Waller of Uncaged the Soul Productions and he's a really outdoorsman and he loves extreme outdoor activities. And I was like, it just doesn't match. And so he put together this kind of amazing videographer too. Yes. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And yeah, when I was seeing his stuff back, you know, back in the day, like Bob's books and stuff, and I'm like, well, it's a great, you know, it's the videography part is great, but it just doesn't match. So he ended up putting together a compilation video of all these places all over Oregon and he called it finding Oregon and it was beautiful like people that have lived here their entire lives were like I don't even know where that is where is that and it went viral and the executive producer at TEDx Portland had seen the video it went viral he saw some kind of clip on TV and he contacted John and said hey I want you to do a TED talk at TEDx Portland and so John just knee-jerked and said yes 
But he was terrified. He was terrified, and and he knew that I was speaking. I wasn't even a speaker coach at the time. He just said, oh, my God, Kathy, I just said yes to doing a TED Talk. Can you help me? And you want to hear what's worse? I agreed to do a TED Talk with my business partner, Ben Canales, So, and we're going to do some demoing of equipment. So, like, how the hell do we do this? So that's kind of – that was the – that was the jump into the TED world, and and it just it took me a while, Ryan, to go. Wait a minute, I'm a marketer. What the hell am I doing in this space? And then I quickly realized, if you know anything about TED and their mission of spreading ideas, I quickly realized that all a TED talk is is a mini mini marketing campaign for an idea. And once I realized that, I was like, oh, this is where I should be. Well, how do you do? I know a lot, like uh, Emma McElroy brilliant um entrepreneur and and uh ceo of wild fang and um she like do people use their ted talks in their own marketing like she has it in her email signature line and i think stephen green might as well like but do people like start a whole kind of career after they um have their ted talk to kind of brand or market themselves oh my gosh I should just tell you two names, Brene Brown and Simon Sinek. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, that's at a whole other level, but yeah. No, but they're both TEDx talks. Like if you go back and you go, Simon Sinek did one of the very first TEDx talks. TEDx came onto the scene in 2009. That's when TED came out with this format of like, hey, we're going to have, we're going to allow local cities to do their own version of TED and we're going to have them, you know, talk about local ideas, local issues, local speakers. And he did it at TEDx Puget Sound. So, you know, he did it within our region. And, you know, if you watch his TED Talk, there's like a flip chart. He's holding a handheld mic. I swear there's like a fly flying around. I mean, it looks like it was kind of done in a garage. And But he's doing his thing, and his thing's amazing. I mean, you know, his whole book, Start With Why, ended up freaking launching from that point. And, um, you know, Brene Brown, of course, was already doing amazing work. But when her TEDx Houston talk went viral, it really put her quickly in the global spotlight. So, yeah, sometimes it's easy to look at people like that, and you go, well, yeah, them. But they, they were like you and I. And so I think one of the cool things about TED Talks and why TED – TED to me, like TEDx to me, is like the New York subway. It's the great equalizer. If you get a TED Talk, even if it's on the TEDx stage, and you kill it, and it goes viral, you could be the next Brene Brown or Simon Sinek. And yeah, many people um, have done some great things with their career, and that platform of TED has definitely given them one more elevation. You know, I'm sure, you know, people like Emma and Steven and Tyrone, they're already doing amazing things. So it's not like this TED Talk, it brought them from nothing to something, but it added one more layer that really, really elevated them. So, yeah. That's cool. I do want our listeners to understand more about your business because you coach a lot of like Nike executives and things like that on, not everything is just TED speakers, right? Um, it's uh, how to be great in presentations and and speaking and what to, can you give us a, a quick snapshot of some of the things that you point out um, so people listening can be like, oh, that's, I wouldn't have thought of that in public speaking or, you know. Yeah, yeah, sure. Actually, I have to credit Nike to that. Nike was looking for a speaker coach for an internal event that they do that's kind of like a a TED-like event. 
and they stumbled upon upon me and I ended up coaching their their initial group of speakers and then one of the speakers said we should have her train everybody in North American brand anybody that's giving any presentation at any level should be going through this is really good stuff because I had already launched my how to rock a TED talk program and at that moment I was only gearing it towards people that wanted to actually get you know and and give TED talks but Nike was smart enough because they're so innovative like they were smart enough to say hey we love TED talks let's take some of that magic and let's infuse that into what we do. So yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of great things that you can you can pull from a TED Talk. Number one, TED Talks, if you really pay attention, it's about one singular, like one really good idea. And TED is really strict about making sure that people aren't talking about the same thing over and over. So if you talk about something, if your topic is about something that's already been talked about, they're gonna make you find another a new angle. You have to position it in a different way a way that we've never heard before, a way that you can't, you know, I mean, you know, many times when people present things, they go and they do the same stuff. Like you grab an old slide deck, you, you know, you perpetuate the same information because you literally think it's about just giving people content, but it's not. It's about inspiring somebody with new ideas, making them think in a way they've never thought before. So just on the the surface level right there it's about infusing an idea I mean even if you're pitching it to your company and it's just something that you want to do internally find that one really cool angle that you can talk about and wrap everything else around that and that's that's one big piece there's a lot of little um, nuances in TED Talks that that people might not notice for instance many many times people are using personal stories and and so in personal stories we all love to look at you know CEOs and go oh they're great they're successful let's just copy what they're doing but their success actually comes from this moment where things changed for them they were poor or they were struggling and then there was this twist moment for them um, so in TED Talks many times they get to that twist moment they talk about it in a story and they're like, yeah, this is what was happening. And boom, this idea was born and it was born out of this low point in this twist moment. So there's techniques like that. Um, also, you know, one thing that's overlooked a lot in presentations is if you're really trying to get somebody behind an idea, you should come up with a catchphrase, something that people can remember, something that will evoke emotion. Like I was just coaching a bunch of speakers yesterday for the Oregon Business Plan Leadership Summit, and one of the speakers was talking about water, and his his opening ended up being something to the effect of, if you love water, like you truly love water, think of all the ways in which water loves you back. And so it was this great emotional thing and he kind of talked about, you know, maybe a beautiful wedding that you were at near somewhere with water or, you know, he kind of evoked all these emotions and, and it's just about thinking. So he did a, he did a good job of personifying water. And so it's sometimes just taking something and, and angling it a little bit differently. I like that. I like that a lot. Um, so you talked about inspiration, um, which is embedded in the, you know, the TED premise. And I uh, wanted to know who's a person that's inspiring you right now. Oh, my gosh. This is so easy. My sister. My sister's amazing. So I have this sister that her name is Karen. If she weren't my sister, 
we wouldn't even be friends. We're so different. My sister is a patent examiner for the, <laughs> the patent office. She has a an electrical engineering degree in uh, Virginia. <laughs> Um, she no, she lives oh. in Dallas now. Oh, okay. She did when she first started working. She she had to to work out of the Washington D.C. office, which is Virginia, yeah. which is in Virginia, which but. is where Amazon HQ two is going into that. Patent, oh, it's going like, into that, that into literally that, space. that patent area. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of kind of big buildings in that area. So she did work out of there the first couple of years, but she's she's uh, she's independent now, so she can work from anywhere. Um, she. She was somebody that she's younger than me, so this is kind of it's kind of funny the role she's played in my life. When I was going through my divorce, when she she was living in New York at the time, and I didn't know this until many years later, but she used to stand at the Fifty Third and Lexington <laughs> subway stop, and she couldn't go downstairs because we were on the phone, and I was on the other lo- line crying, and I, I was telling her how horrible my life was, and and how nothing like like. I mean, I literally was at like the lowest point in my life. I really didn't feel like living. I definitely said some things that were probably scared the crap out of her. And she was on the other, on the other line. She would talk to me for an hour, two hours. I I never at that point knew that she, like, she couldn't even get on the subway because she had to just stand there and talk to me. And she did it, Ryan, so many times. And when I first started my business, she was the person in my life when I wanted to quit a couple of times. I'm like, oh my God, Karen, I can't do this. I make a bunch of money and then I'm starving for like six months. I have no money, like none. And my sister told me this one thing and I never forgot it. She goes, Kathy, I have this great job at the patent office. I make good money. And she's like, and you, you might make $20,000 this year, but your earning potential kills mine. Like, you could make a million next year with everything that you are, with everything that you know. And I, it was a moment where, I mean, honestly, I didn't really believe her, but her words sunk. And she's just been that person in my life. Like, I freaking love my sister. We're best friends. And if you follow me on any social media, you see I, I took her to walk a bridge in, in Australia this year. I love her. She's been the she's most. She's your rock. Oh, she's so my rock. Yeah, I'm lucky like that. I have two amazing sisters as well. Um, yeah, got a little teary eyed on that one. That was that was great. Um, okay, so our last question is, um, and you may have already covered it, but it's that tell us something the audience may not know about you that happened in your formative years. Um, that kind of a life moment more so than a career moment that it's not a surprise that where you are now running your own company, having this really positive impact on the world with um, making speakers so much better and inspiring indirectly millions of people. Um, were there, what was a life moment that happened earlier that you may either want to expand on or something we haven't covered yet? Yeah, I'd probably have to go back to the Korean company where it it was such that by far had the biggest impact and the, the biggest trajectory change in my life where 
I went from being this 20 something mother and ended up being a single mom and I had no plans for my life. And at this point now I wasn't, I didn't, I didn't choose to go the route of college. And I literally thought that that was going to be my life. I thought that there was no way that I was ever going to be able to afford to raise my kids and to do anything. I just didn't expect anything out of my life. I just didn't. And when I started working there, I, it's like something came out of me and there there was something within me that I didn't know was there and so to be presented with this opportunity call it luck because I don't the stars aligned somehow I could have gotten a job at a grocery store I don't know I could have changed my life and um, there was just something there and there were all these crazy challenges that were put forth to me and and I, I I had no choice. I had to like take it and run with it. So it it was very it was a very interesting time in my life. And I ended up meeting, which was very funny. I ended up meeting the the man who would raise my kids. Um, in <laughs> I met him in Germany at a at a glass show, and he was from Barcelona, from Spain. And so he moved to the United States, and we're divorced now. He, that was the divorce I was telling you about. But he actually raised my kids because I didn't stay with the father of my kids. So it's kind of a it, it just was. It was just a huge moment in my life where all these things happen, and that's that was a part of it. It's powerful. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. Yeah, thank you so much, Ryan. You're amazing. Oh, you too. All right. Cheers. Cheers.